Hey, Hello's Church. Let me invite you to open your Bibles to that same section of Scripture that our brother Jeremy just read a moment ago, Mark chapter 11, starting in verse 1. My name is Keith. I'm one of the pastors here in West Seattle. It's a joy to worship with you this morning. And I find myself particularly grateful for those very timely words from Andrew and, of course, from uh, another elder, Colin, um, because of the season that we are in, but also because they make up for the deficiency in my own sermon. You see, I'm not going to lead in talking about a king and talking about politics and talking about the president. I'm going to lead in talking about the Cubs. <laughs> How anticlimactic, huh? <laughs> the Cubs. So something happened <clears throat> this past week, and uh, it's, uh, it tied up an, a 108-year story in our culture. And so, yes, the, the Chicago Cubs, the Cubbies, they finally won the World Series, bringing to an end that horrible 108-year drought, as they called it. And when they returned home on November 4. They were met with a parade of five million people. Two years, sorry, actually earlier uh, in the summer, a similar type of situation happened, right? Cleveland Cavaliers, 52 years of waiting. And they returned home and there was a parade of 1.3 million people. About 12 years before that, the Boston Red Sox, a drought of 86 years, anticipating and waiting for that final decisive victory. They won it. They came home, and they were met with a parade of 3.2 million people. Going back 10 years before that, because I am a hockey fan, I have to throw some hockey in there. The New York Rangers in 1994, after 52 years of waiting, anticipation for the decisive victory, they returned home victorious to a crowd of 1.5 million people. And of course, here in our own city two years ago, the Seahawks. After 30 years of waiting for our championship, and our crowd was 700,000. Come on, guys. <clears throat> so the question I have for you, especially when I could have led in with something politics, that probably would have been a lot more fitting, um, is what in the world does that have to do with anything? Why does stuff like that matter to us? Why would people playing a game, and it's okay to enjoy the games, guys. I'm not going to talk about how bad sports is. But why is it that when this game is over, millions of people will gather together and celebrate a victory? Why do we do that? And it's not, we're, you know, we're not the only country that does that. You know, it happens with World Cup. It happens with all kinds of things. Why do we as people do things like that? And of course, the next question has to be, what in the world does that have to do with Jesus entering Jerusalem on a donkey? Well, by God's grace, we will find that out in just a moment. But let me pray for us one more time, and we'll jump in. God, I thank you for this church family. I thank you that by your kindness and by your grace that um, this church is about you, Jesus, and this church is about the gospel and the good news. And so I pray that what happens here in this moment would be an extension of that, that as a result of our time together studying your word, that this church body, that we would feel loved by you, 
that we would feel challenged by you, that we would feel provoked by you in a healthy way, that we would feel convicted by you. And overall, again, that we would sense your love and your leadership in our lives. And God, that you would fill us with such a great hope because Jesus is the king that we need and he's the king uh, that uh, went to the cross for us. So Lord, please use this time, build your church, grow your kingdom, and we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. When you come to this moment in the Gospel of Mark, a lot has been building up. Jesus has been saying a lot of things. He's been alluding to a lot of Old Testament sayings. The people have been getting hints of what he has been uh, getting after, and they've been proclaiming things about him. There's been a lot building up and leading to this moment. It would be very easy to say that as Jesus is riding into Jerusalem, one word that could sum all of it up is that word longing. This hopeful expectation and anticipation that the arrival of Jesus into Jerusalem really means something. You don't quite see it as clearly in the Mark text, but you definitely see it in the in all of the accounts coming together. This is, in fact, a paramount moment in the Gospels. Luke would indicate uh, in his Gospel account of this event, not a contradictory account, of course, but he just adds extra details, that as Jesus is riding into Jerusalem on a donkey, that the Pharisees would begin to rebuke him in a way and and because they don't like that people are shouting Hosanna to the son of David and that they're crying out for the kingdom of David. They don't like that. And Jesus responds to them, and I'm going to be paraphrasing some of these. He says that if these people were to be silent, even the rocks would cry out. And what Jesus is getting after here is that this is an incredible moment in the gospel narrative, in the gospel story. Because when you look throughout all of scripture, you see that the physical world that we live in responds to God. There's language all throughout the Old Testament and even some in the New Testament that says that the waves of the ocean, the waves of the sea, the mountains, the fields, the heavens, the stars, all of these things are responding to God in such a way that is praise. And so in this occasion of Jesus entering into Jerusalem and you get this sense of longing. You, you see, especially in Luke's narrative, that the physical creation is doing the same exact thing, that even the creation itself is longing for redemption. You see that language in the New Testament, that even the physical space in which we occupy has some kind of an awareness to God in such a way that it is groaning to be made new. And if you turn over to Matthew's account, often in, uh, in each of these accounts of Jesus entering into Jerusalem, an event that we will discuss next week, that we'll study that next week, Jesus in the temple, those two are often tied together. In Matthew's account, we see this, especially that the people keep shouting, Hosanna to the son of David, 
as Jesus is in the temple. So they're doing it outside the city as he's coming in. And then even when a day passes and Jesus goes back into the temple, the people keep shouting Hosanna to the son of David. And once again, we have some detractors in this. Chief priests, scribes, they don't like it. And so they're, of course, asking Jesus about it. And and their question indicates some objection to what is happening. And what is Jesus' response? And again, paraphrasing, he says, Have you not seen that it's written in the scriptures that out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies you have prepared praise for yourself? As if to say that it is born in the hearts of people to respond to God, to long for God, to long for his kingdom. It's not just the physical space in which we occupied. It is every single person on this planet that longs for the kingdom of God, even if that is not the word or the phrase that they would use for it, which is why Jesus says, even an infant an infant that just comes out and the only thing this baby knows how to do is scream and think to itself, what is that really bright light? It longs to praise God. It longs for the kingdom of God. And so this occasion in the gospel of Mark is incredibly significant because Jesus is being put forward Once again, as he has this entire gospel and throughout the entire New Testament and anything that you'll read in the Bible, in fact, that he is being put forth as the king that all of creation longs for. The people, the elements, everything longs for Jesus. And this is indeed a section about a kingdom because coming in to the city, what are the people crying out They're crying out, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David. To them, this is about a kingdom. And this is about a a longing and a hope fulfilled. Now, we we talked about sports to introduce this. And I'm gonna, I'm gonna say that at least one of the reasons why I believe that we get caught up in things like this is because it's actually part of a story. You know, those stories aren't that exciting if it's, if it's a team that's been around and it's, you know, just another year. But when you have a team that hasn't won a championship in 108 years, that becomes a story, doesn't it? Whenever you have people who go to a grave, there's a, I read a story of a man who went to the grave of his father because a long time ago he made a promise to his dad that, Dad, if the Cubbies ever get to the World Series, we're going to listen to those games together. And so he went to his father's grave and listened to all seven games of the World Series. You see, things like that 108-year span, there's a story involved, isn't there? And that story, the longer it goes on, the more characters get involved, the more opportunity for people like villains or heroes to show up, the more that we feel like we are a part of something bigger than ourselves. That's one of the reasons why sports is so popular with people 
because we can go and hang out with complete strangers. They could be a different race, a different socioeconomic class, and we don't care because we're rooting for the same thing. We feel wrapped up in this narrative that is taking place. And for the sports fan, each season is a new narrative, isn't it? It's a new story. And in the case of the Cubs, it was 108 years of story mounting up on each other, and it just had this fantastic finish. And as a, at least a, a, a kind of a sports fan, I would say that it was probably supposed to be one of the greatest baseball games ever played. So it had a great finish to it. And like any good story, people are already looking for heroes, aren't they? People are already trying to think of who's the player that really stood out among everything else. They're trying to think, was it you know, the manager's use of all of his players throughout the series? They're even looking at the general manager, the one who was the architect of the team. Is he the hero of the story? People were for years trying to assign a villain, the poor guy about 10 years ago when the Cubs were in the playoffs. And you, some of you remember, remember this story. This poor guy is just an excited fan. He reaches for a foul ball. And that plays a small role in the Cubs eventually losing the game and their hopes are dashed again. And this poor guy is ostracized in Cubby's nation for the rest of his life. He became a villain in this story. But every story has a hero, right? In every story we see, we want, we want a hero. And when this is happening in the Gospel of Mark, there's this amazing moment in, in all of the story of the Bible that perhaps, maybe second or third only to the resurrection, that Jesus is being put forward as that hero you see, this book that we are studying from, from beginning to end, is actually one big story. If, if you're not really sure and you want to test that, I encourage you afterwards, I'll give you a reading assignment. When you go home, go read the first three chapters of Genesis, which is the beginning of the story. And then go read the last three chapters of Revelation, which is the end of the story, and see how many things line up. And see how many things get wrapped up. See how many things get solved or concluded or how many things get taken care of as a part of the story. I know for some of you uh, highly literary, you, you bookworms, I know that agitates you that I just told you to read the end of the story before you actually read the story itself. But in the case of the Bible, it's okay to cheat and go read the end of the story. Okay, guys? So that's your reading assignment if you want. But this is one big story. Now, we have to be careful and say that this isn't just a story. This is, this is God's word. We believe that God has spoken into human history and communicated in such a way that we could understand who he is and that that could be transmitted and translated and given to people of all nations and ethnicities and languages. God wants to be known, and so he has given us revelation, and we do believe that it was inspired by the Holy Spirit and written through human beings. There's something very special and singularly unique about this book. But one of the reasons why we love stories even though we're a highly literate culture and just about everything we communicate is in print, one of the reasons why we love stories is because God made us to love stories. Because God has written 
a story. And like all good stories, there's a hero. And Jesus is being put forward as the hero of this epic story. And Jesus is being put forward as the one who fulfills all the plans and the purposes of God. And we see little glimmers of it in here. Let me go ahead and reread some verses for us. As they approached Jerusalem at Bethphage and Bethany near the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the village opposite you and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt there on which no one yet has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? You say the Lord has need of it and immediately he will send it back here. And they went away and found a colt at the door outside in the street and they untied it. Some of the bystanders were saying to them, what are you doing untying the colts? And they spoke to them just as Jesus had told them and they gave them permission. They brought the colt to Jesus and put their coats on it and he sat on it. And many spread their coats in the road and others spread leafy branches, which they had cut from the fields. And those who went in front and those who were followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David, Hosanna in the highest. Does something seem strange to you in this? This is 11 verses. And seven of it was dedicated to a donkey. Isn't that weird? Now, the gospel of Mark is known for being concise and being fast moving and getting from story to story and getting to the point very quickly. If you want extra details, go check out Matthew, go check out Luke, but not Mark if you want the extra details. So why in the world is there so much written about Jesus getting a donkey? Notice, there's a lot of detail here. And notice that every single bit of detail that happens, happens just as Jesus said it would. Now, there's a couple of ways that we can look at this. Either this was prearranged or it was simply um, a quality or an expression of Jesus's divine knowledge. Honestly, you could answer either way. And the shock factor here should be the same because this isn't the day of texting and email and this isn't the day of 20 years ago when we had beepers and pagers, right? You, you wish we had those again, don't you? The, even if Jesus had been here and made this arrangement, it would have been weeks prior, perhaps months prior to this moment. And then he would go out miles away and perform ministry in other places and teach in other places. And so anything could have offset this moment. There could have been a storm to offset this moment. In fact, there was a storm. There could have been sickness offsetting this moment. There could have been exhaustion offsetting this moment in every single way. Every detail of what Jesus said would take place happened. The fact that there would be a donkey tied up and that the age of this donkey would be such that it is still referred to as a colt, a foal of a donkey, that matters. The fact that this donkey would be of such a condition that no one has yet ever ridden on this donkey. And by the way, in biblical language, that means that this donkey would have a sacred purpose. The fact that there would be people waiting there with a question. And the fact that they would respond in the way that they needed to 
Every single detail of this happened in the way that it needed to, in the way that Jesus intended for it to, in the way that Jesus planned for it to. And the reason why that matters is because that's just a blip. That's just a shadow of everything that is colliding in this moment. You see, it's not just about a donkey in this moment. That matters. But it's just a snapshot of a much, much bigger picture. Because what's happening here, when Jesus, when everything happens, just as Jesus said it would, it's indicating a much bigger picture. Everything is happening overall as God said it would. And so we're going to do something in this moment that's going to be a little different. Um, I told you that, that this is one big story that, and I promised you guys last week when we were talking about the son of David, that that really matters. There's some pretty amazing things that have to do with the son of David. And I, I promised you guys, I got to keep my promise that we're going to talk more about what that means. We're going to, as best as we can, as briefly as we can, try to understand what is the big deal about what's happening here. And so I'm just going to tell you a story. And if you don't mind, I'm going to assume the posture of storytelling, and that is sitting down like Grandpa. I am young, but I am losing my hair, so it's a little bit appropriate. I just want to tell you guys a story. So as best you, and, and by the way, in your handout, there's a list of scriptures that I am going to reference. I'm going to ask you to just kind of set that aside for a moment. And just listen to the story. So in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And in six days, God spoke and created everything that was. Something special happened on the sixth day. It, it was that God created man and woman in his image, Adam and Eve in his likeness. And God rested on the seventh day and then Adam and Eve enjoyed this created order that God had made. They were placed in the garden to work it, to enjoy it. And the world was such that even Adam and Eve were naked and they were not ashamed. Now, a little later on in the story, a snake slithers his way up to Eve. And there's some questions through some statements, this serpent manages to deceive Eve. You see, God had given them a command. He said, you can enjoy everything that you see in this garden, but there's one tree that you cannot enjoy. You cannot taste its fruit because in the day that you do, you will die. And when this serpent had deceived this woman, she took the fruit from this tree that was forbidden and she ate it. She gave it to her husband, Adam. He took it, he ate it. And then both of their eyes were opened and they realized that they were naked. And so they ran and they hid in the bushes and they tried to cover themselves up with fig leaves. All of a sudden they hear footprints. They, sorry, sorry, they hear footsteps. It's God. God was walking in the garden and he says, where are you? And Adam cries out from this place of hiding. He said, we were afraid of you. So we hid because we were naked. And God said to Adam, who told you you were naked? 
And Adam, perhaps in a moment of panic, blamed his wife. And then God asked Eve, what have you done? And Eve, perhaps in a moment of panic, blamed this serpent. And then God looked to the serpent and said, what have you done? And this creator God who had made such a beautiful world proceeded to put a curse on each one of them. But all hope was not lost because in the midst of cursing the woman, in the midst of these consequences that would come about, he looked at Eve and he said, one will come from you. And although he will be struck on the heel by the serpent, he will crush the head of the serpent. Strange. Well, the story continues on and Adam and Eve are removed from the garden. God takes skins from one of the animals in the garden and clothes them because apparently those fig leaves were not enough. They weren't good enough. And time would go on. In many generations, there would be a flood, but we won't talk about that flood. We're gonna go many more generations after that. And God would appear to a man named Abram. And when he spoke to this Abram, he gave him some promises. He's, and a couple of those promises were this. He said, Abram, I'm going to take you and I'm going to turn you into a nation. Which is strange because Abram and his wife Sarai were way past the age of having kids. Nevertheless, God gave him this promise. And then he also gave another promise. He said, Abram, one of your descendants one day will bless all the families of the earth. It's pretty amazing. And so time would go on. God would keep his promise. Abraham and his wife would have children. And one of those children, Isaac, would have children. And one of those children was named Jacob. Jacob would have a relationship with the God of his father and his grandfather. And those same promises that God gave to Abram, he passed on to Jacob. And in fact, at one point, God approved this promise by changing his name to Israel. And in time, Israel would have 12 sons. And it's getting close to the time of Israel's death. And like many fathers in those days, they, he wanted to speak a blessing over his kids. And so he turns to each one of his sons and he gives them a blessing. And wrapped up in this blessing, he says, this is going to be what will, in your, what will be in your future. He's going to give them a prophecy for each one of them. Now in those days, the firstborn son was the place of honor. And when a father died, the firstborn son would rise up in his place but there's a problem in Israel's family and Jacob's family because the firstborn son had done something pretty shameful. And so when the blessing comes, there's nothing about the dignity of the firstborn son. And in fact, the next two oldest sons, they've also done something pretty shameful in their past. And so he skips over them as well and he comes to the fourth son. And interestingly enough, this son had a pretty shameful occasion in his past as well. But nevertheless, Jacob stops on his son Judah and he says Judah from you will come kings and in fact the scepter the ruler's staff will pass down through your family from king to king until one day it comes to him 
to whom it has belonged the whole time. And then he says some other stuff about a lion and about a donkey tied to a vine. It's kind of strange, but he gives this blessing to Judah and to the rest of his sons, other blessings. Israel dies in time. These 12 sons have children. Those have children, more and more children. They grow into a nation, Israel. Through another great story that we don't have time for called the Exodus, God would take this people out of Egypt where they were in slavery and into the wilderness. They would sit in the wilderness for about 40 years. They had a hard time obeying God. And there was this enemy king during that time. He didn't like Israel. He was pretty scared of them. And so what he did is he went to a guy named Balaam and he hired him and he said, I want you to curse Israel. And so Balaam agrees, but he has this encounter with God. And the God who made all things is not going to let Balaam curse his people. So he says, you're going to bless my people. And so he does. And one of those blessings, when he's standing on top of a mountain, he looks out over the people of Israel and he says, he says things that that sound a lot like what God said to Abraham. And he says a bunch of stuff that sounds a lot like what God said to Judah. And so all of a sudden, what once sounded like two people that we're waiting for is actually one person. And the story goes on. Israel would eventually go into the land and, and it was great. You know, they finally were at rest a little bit. They were no longer wandering in the wilderness. And then all of a sudden, Israel has a moment of panic. They're worried. They, they say, God, we want a king. You know, the nations around us, they have a king, so we want a king too. And God sends a prophet Samuel to warn them and Samuel's like, you guys don't know what you're asking for. Let God rule you. You don't have to ask for a king. But they keep fighting. They want a king. And so God agrees and gives them a man named Saul, not from the tribe of Judah, but from the tribe of Benjamin, which is strange. Why would God do that? And the story continues on, and and Saul's reign starts out pretty well, but it eventually starts to go downhill pretty fast. And so... God sends Samuel to anoint another king. He sends him to the city of Bethlehem. Sorry, it's probably rather a town at that point. And Bethlehem is in the land of Judah to a man named Jesse who has many sons. And a lot of those sons are big strapping dudes. I mean, they look kingly. But God tells Samuel, it's not them that I want. And in fact, he wants Samuel to go to the youngest son who's of not much account at all. He's just a shepherd, kind of a little guy. And he says, that's going to be my king. And so Samuel anoints him and this young shepherd named David eventually becomes king. And as we talked about a little bit last week, David uh, consolidates power. Israel is at peace in the land and he, he just feels restless because he lives in this palace that's made of cedar. It's beautiful. He's, he's living it up, you might say. But then all of a sudden he's, he's disturbed because God, the place where God said he would live is not a building, it's a tent. So David's bothered by this. So he says he's gonna build a temple for this God that he serves But the creator, God, who's been there the whole time, he sends David a prophet named Nathan. 
And Nathan tells David, David, you're not going to build a temple. You have too much blood on your hands from all these wars, but your son will. And Solomon, his son, would build a temple. But God would also say to David, you won't build me a house, David, but I'm going to build you a house. And from you, David, will be kings and your throne will last forever. And David responds in tremendous faith and worship and praise. And this David, even though he wasn't mighty in stature, it was like he was mighty in worship because he would write tons of songs. They're called Psalms in our Bible. And and there's a lot that he would write. And a couple of them actually talk about this king that he was looking forward to. One of them is Psalm 2, where David thinks and meditates and rejoices that God is going to send a king who's going to rule the nations. But then he says something really strange. He talks about this king is going to be God's begotten son. There's some more songs that David writes and eventually David writes another one. We know it as Psalm 110. And again, David is rejoicing that a king is coming who's going to rule over all the nations. But then he says that this king is going to be an eternal priest. Well, you know, in time, you know, David was a pretty good king, but, you know, he would die and David would have sons and those sons would have sons and these kings would rise up in David's line, just like he said. And sometimes the kings were good. Sometimes the kings were bad. Man, there was this one time, there's this crazy lady named Athalia. I mean, she is, I mean, she's, she's crazy. She's the queen mother and she goes and kills every single descendant of David. And when you're reading this, you're thinking, oh my gosh, what about God's promise? But then there's this priest. He sees what's happening. And so he goes and he rescues a child, a single baby, and hides this baby in a temple. And this baby would one day grow up, become a king. His name is Joash. So thankfully, the line of David continues on. More kings, some good, some bad. Everybody's waiting. When is this king who's going to come that's going to rule the nations? And somehow, how is this throne going to go on forever, especially when all of these kings keep dying? And it becomes especially crazy when Israel's nation comes to an end. You see, Israel all this time would have significant seasons of rebellion And God would send prophets to warn them, but it didn't work. And then Israel was kicked out of their land and their monarchy came to a close. But all this time, these prophets, even though they warned the people, they would continue to give messages of hope. One of those prophets was named Isaiah. And in his book, you can read how one time he said this, this message from God. He said, a child will be born to us and a son will be given. And his throne will be forever. And his name will be Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. You know, in another time when he's speaking to the people, he, he says that this king from the family of David, he's coming. You also know him as the root of Jesse. And he's going to be like a beacon, like a lighthouse, a signal And all the nations are going to see this beacon and see this lighthouse and see this signal. They're going to start coming to this king. Isaiah wasn't the only one. He would say a whole lot more. But, you know, Jeremiah was another. 
he would call this king the righteous branch. And he said that this king is going to save God's people. Another prophet, Ezekiel, said that this king is going to be like a shepherd. And he is going to care for God's people and lead them to peace. And there's going to be no more war and no more sin. And there's a prophet named Hosea. And he would say that even though Israel is without a king, one day they're going to return to the Lord. And they're going to return to this king who's going to care for them. And a a prophet like Amos, who would say, this king will come and restore the fortunes of God's people and will establish them and make them to live forever. And then there was this other prophet named Zechariah. He had something really interesting to say. He would say, behold, Jerusalem, your king is coming to you. And he has a throne that will last forever. He's coming to you humble and mounted on a donkey. Mounted on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And so you see, what's happening here in Mark chapter 11 is pretty big, isn't it? It's an incredibly grand and beautiful story and Jesus is being put forward as the hope, as the one who fulfills all of those longings, who fulfills all of those expectations. And it's no wonder that the people are crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. The kingdom that we've been waiting for this whole time, it's finally here. He is here, the son of David. But interestingly enough, it's like the crowds are forgetting something. They're overlooking something. You see, this whole time, Jesus has been talking about the kingdom of God. He's been talking about how he is the son of man, the son of David. He is the fulfillment of the scriptures. But you know what else he's been saying is that the son of man must suffer at the hands of men and die for sin and rise three days later. He would say this very explicitly to the people. This is a part of the story. And them screaming out these words, it's like they're completely overlooking it. And it's actually quite fitting. Because what they're crying out is Psalm 118, verse 26. I'm going to read it to you. Psalm 118, verse 26. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God and he has given us light. Bind the festival sacrifice with cords to the horns of the altar. You are my God and I will give thanks to you. You are my God and I will extol you. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good for his loving kindness is everlasting. There's not a lot gloomy in this psalm, is there? And it's, it's kind of reflecting the attitude of the people. They are in celebration mode, but they're overlooking something that Jesus has said. And at the same time, we might be guilty of overlooking something that comes immediately before this in Psalm 118. It happens in verse 22. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. 
The New Testament writers and Jesus himself in Mark chapter 12 would say that this verse pertains to him. And just like someone who's building a building takes this one particular stone and tosses it out because it's rejected, God is going to take that stone and he's going to build something completely different and that stone will be the cornerstone, the most important stone. And Jesus says, this is me. That is a part of all of this celebration. We're forgetting the fact that the son of God, the son of David had to be rejected in the same way that they were screaming out this psalm and forgetting that the stone which the builders rejected is the chief cornerstone. That this son of David, even though he is the king that we are longing for, he is the king that we need. Part of this grand story and part of him being the hero means he had to be rejected first. But lest we forget our context, we back up even more in Psalm 118. Just three verses prior, verse 19. Open to me the gates of righteousness. I shall enter through them. I shall give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous will enter through it. I shall give thanks to you for you have answered me and you have become my salvation. Did you catch that? This psalmist saying, let me in to righteousness. I want to go into the place where the righteous go. And now I give thanks to you, God, because you have answered me and you have become my salvation, God. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. The rejection of the son of David is the door of hope for our salvation. And it's from this that the psalmist is writing and able to say what he says in verse one and what he says at the very end. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good, for his loving kindness is everlasting. His steadfast love endures forever. See, the thing about these stories and even about this election cycle, what's really at stake here is not our country. What's really at stake is people's hope. Behind all of the rhetoric, behind all of the fighting and the talking heads, what's really behind all of it, what is behind people's passion over what is taking place is the matter of hope. Because what everybody wants in the story is to know that in the end, it's going to work out. Which is why in some of those stories you hear about the Cubs. They keep doing it year after year because they had hope that this is my story. This is what I'm a part of and I have hope that it's going to work out. Which is why they were so devastated year after year when it didn't happen. And why they're so happy finally that the parade has come. But what have we learned just experientially in life, what do we learn from human history? That any hope that we place on any person or any earthly thing will eventually undo us. It will eventually disappoint us, won't it? Whoever you vote for, see, I'm talking politics. Whoever you vote for will still be a person. And even if we elect the greatest history 
sorry, the greatest leader in the history of our country, the simple fact is, is that person's term will end in four years. If they get reelected, they'll get another four and that's it. And then in time, that great leader will die. And so our hopes, if they are wrapped up in any individual person, they will be dashed and they will be disappointed. Even if they are the greatest leader that you can conceive. But even if it's not about a leader, even if it's about the story that you are wrapped up in, you have hope in something. You have hope that somehow at the end of the story, it's going to turn out the way it's supposed to, the way it should, the happy ending, so to speak. But there's a problem with that, isn't there? And you know, I'm sure there's a lot of Cubs fans who love Jesus. There needs to be more Cubs fans who love Jesus. But the simple fact is, is there are going to be a lot of people in the city of Chicago and wherever these fans are located that whenever the streamers are cleaned up, whenever the confetti is cleaned up, when it's all said and done, they're going to come to the end of that story and they're going to wake up and they're going to wonder, what's the new story? What do I live for now? Because that story has been concluded. And so what is my life story now? Which is what is so great about this story. And what is so great about this Jesus. Because it's an eternal story. And just like it has been said of him, the son of David, he is an eternal king. You know, you know, it was so important that Jesus died for sins and it was so important that he rose from the grave because an eternal king can't be a king if he stays dead, can he? And just so we are consistent, I'm gonna close us by asking you to turn to the end of the story. Revelation. Now we have to be careful anytime we study this book. Well, any of scripture, of course, but the revelation is basically a vision that was written down and it was a vision given to this man named John and he is trying as best he can and trusting in the inspiration of the spirit to write down some things that his mind cannot comprehend and that he probably just has no words for. But what the end of this story is, is the culmination of God's kingdom. This hope and this longing for a world made new, a world without war, a world without sin. It is told here in the last chapter of this story. There's a problem that happens though. You see, there's this scene in heaven. And God Almighty, the creator of all things, the one who's been there all throughout this story is sitting on his throne and everybody's worshiping and everyone's waiting for this kingdom to come to its fulfillment. But the problem is this, is in his hands, he has a book. And he has to open this book for the story to continue and for the story to get wrapped up. And there's seven seals on this book and everyone is freaking out, especially John, because no one can open it. In fact, the language of Revelation 5 says this, no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the book or to look into it. And John is terrified because what, is it, what does it say about the kingdom? It's gotta come. In verse four, and then I began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the book or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, stop weeping. Behold the lion 
that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. And if you read from there, all manner of craziness, just, it just goes nuts in this book. But it is all a part of the process of God wrapping up this story. And I turn you to the very last page, Revelation 22. After everything has been said and done, after the new heaven, the new earth has been created and God's people are with him forever in eternal bliss in his presence and eternal worship and joy, Jesus has these words. Verse 16, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things for the churches. This is Jesus giving a message to the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David the bright and morning star. What a great story and what a great hero. This King Jesus, that as he's riding into Jerusalem, so much is happening just as God said it would. So that when we look forward and we can trust that everything will happen just as God said it would. And at the center of all of it is Jesus, the son of David. And so the question I want to leave you with is this. You know, the gospel of Mark has put forth all kinds of unworthy things that we can give our lives to in exchange for Jesus and in exchange for God's kingdom. And so my questions are this. What unworthy kings do you feel tempted to follow and similarly, what unworthy stories do you feel tempted to be defined by? Because at the end of this book, right after what Jesus says is an invitation. It's an invitation for each one of you to come to the king that you need, that you long for, and the king that you have rejected, but who offered himself up for you, but it's also an invitation to come into this story, to be defined by this story, one that lasts forever. And I can think of no better way to wrap this up. In verse 17, the spirit of God and the bride, the church say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty come. And let the one who wishes Take the water of life without cost. Heavenly Father, I thank you for such a wonderful, epic, life-changing, earth-shattering, eternally beautiful story. And equally, God, I thank you for a king like no other and a ruler like no other. And that of all of history, past and present and future, points to him, King Jesus, the son of David. God, I pray that in this moment, you would help us to respond as those in heaven responded with worship. I pray, God, that you would help those of us who are wrapped up in the wrong story to come into your story. I pray, God, for those who are wrapped up and entangled following the wrong king, an unworthy king, that you would help us to lay that aside and follow Jesus, the son of David. Thank you that you are good 
and that your love is forever and that no matter what, you are eternal king. And we pray this in your name, amen.